If this is your first Sunday, just so you know, we're going through Hebrews, okay, so there's a little context here. We're not just picking the scariest words in the Bible to preach randomly. Um, but they are, honestly, these are, if you are listening, these are some of the scariest words written in Scripture, and they are written down for you and for me, for the church. And in case, in case you weren't really listening, or, you know, there's a lot of words you weren't maybe, maybe following, let me just sort of summarize what he said. Some of us are faking it, and we don't even know it. You see, there are three types of people in any church. There are Christians, of course. And and there are those who aren't Christians. Makes sense. And then there are those who think they're Christians, but aren't. I could be one of them. You could be one of them. Because some of us are faking it. And we don't even know it. Now, before you, you know, kindle a fire to burn me at the stake, or um, just get up and leave, or even even just just tune me out. Before you do any of that, let 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 me start over, okay? Begin again. Okay, recently, I, I've had this one enemy, these, these, last, these last few weeks uh, in particular, as an enemy that I have, I have sought to destroy time and again, but it continues to best me, right? It's just, just defeat me. Um, it's our lousy, horrible, no good smoke alarms. <laughs> Don't laugh, Okay. Seri- I mean, these things have just about killed me, I think. And my, I, don't mean, I don't mean that they've been, like, chirping. Okay, we've all dealt with that. Chirping, smoke alarms, big deal, right? It's annoying, fine, but you can move on. No, these things just decide to go off whenever they want to. Whenever they want to. And we have seven of them, and they're all wired together in our house, of course. And so when they go off, I mean, it is, the whole house just throbs with the worst noise I have ever heard in my life. And it's always at the worst time, too. And for example, um, in January, we started a community group. Okay, some of you, right? You remember, all right? Our first night together, um, like 30 minutes into our first night together, Kelly and I are just trying to make a decent impression with these people that we barely even have ever met, and the alarms shrieked for a good 10 minutes. I mean, it's like they knew it would be a bad time. There was another time it happened at 4 in the morning. Adrenaline raging, right? Jumping out of bed, running through the entire house for, again, a good 10 minutes, trying to figure out how to shut them off, how to make it quiet. Nobody goes to bed after that. Nobody, right? None of the four of us. We were all wide awake from that point on. I mean, I won't tell you the words that flew from my mouth as I literally, literally ripped this object of cruel torture off of my ceiling. I mean, just, you know, in my half-asleep stupor, right? Things are... They're the worst. I mean, it's, it's kind of gotten so bad where, I mean, at least early on, the first couple of times, I did the responsible thing and, and looked for a fire. But after a while, I mean, a fire would have kind of been a welcome change, right? At least then there would have been an explanation. I mean, we're ready to bring in an exorcist for these things. And we actually just ended up replacing them all. That was a little bit easier. Um, and so far, eight days alarm-free, okay? So help me, right? It's rough. 
I mean, alarms are, they're infuriating, they're loud, obnoxious. I mean, when they're going off, there is nothing else that you could possibly even, like, notice or think about. They're, they're, they're terrible. But it got so bad where there was, there was this patch where the kids were, they were afraid to go to bed. They were like, Daddy, they're not going to go off tonight, are they? <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I don't, this is, we, we hate, we hate alarms. I mean, except when they're working properly, right? Like, they, they just might save you. Nobody wants to hear an alarm go off, but in a real emergency, it is better than the alternative. And, and I'll tell you, nobody wants to hear the verses that we just read. I mean, honestly, you want to hear this sermon about as much as I want to preach it. Frankly, I think I probably want to preach it even less. Because Scripture contains some very alarming passages. And this is one of the loudest. And it's not meant to discourage us. It's here to protect us. To stoke the adrenaline of our faith. To wake us from our, from our self-delusion. And to propel us towards life-saving action. Because some of us are faking it. And we don't even know it. I could play the part. I could be that pastor. I'm sure I've, I've got you convinced that I follow Jesus. Shoot, I'm convinced that I follow Jesus. But I could throw it all away. There's a series of bad choices. Just walk away from Jesus forever. Wouldn't be the first pastor. Wouldn't be the last so could you. Now, if you're, if you're not a Christian here this morning, and, and you know, right, and you know you're not a Christian, um, maybe, maybe you're thinking like right out of the, what does this have to do with me, right? Um, how does this connect in any way to my life? I mean, if, if, you're, if you're a non-believer, right, not a believer, um, maybe you're thinking that. Well, two things come to my mind just quickly for, for those of you who come from that background. First of all, uh, this will give you a better understanding of what it means to believe, what it looks like. And, and chances are you're here because you came with somebody who does believe, right, and they want you here. And so this will help you understand them better. It'll help you make a, a more informed decision about, about who Jesus is. That's the first reason. The second reason, honestly, and I think even, even more so, is, is that for, for many who, who reject Jesus, maybe, maybe some of you, um, the reason you do so, or one of the reasons, is because of all the junk you see in the church, right? You see, you see the hypocrisy of Christians, and let me just say, the Bible agrees with you on this. And in fact, the Bible sees the same hypocrisy you see, and likes it even less than you like it. Because maybe you, you look around and you think, man, these people, some of them, their, their lives are worse than mine. What's the point? Well, this will give you a, maybe a little bit of a different category to think about those things. Because some of us reject Jesus based on the worst of his supposed followers. That's kind of like saying you don't like fish when all you've ever eaten is fish sticks. It's not really fair to the fish, is it? And yet we do that, right? We make those, those sweeping categorizations based on some that, frankly, may not really be Christians. Some people claim to follow Jesus, but aren't. 
Not everyone who says they're a Christian is a Christian. Now, if you are a Christian, maybe a little bit more accurately this morning, if you think you're a Christian here this morning, these words, we need to hear them. I need to hear them as if my life depends on them. Because some of us are faking, and we don't even know it. So let's unpack this idea of fake faith. What does that even mean? Well, the author walks us through it. Three things, I think, jump out in these three sort of big sections in this text that we heard read just a moment ago. That that this fake faith, it begins with laziness. It leads to hopelessness. But it can be assured by faithfulness. First, it begins with laziness. Okay, so we've been studying this ancient sermon that we know of called Hebrews in our Bibles, in the New Testament. Um, Many would say that it originated as a sermon preached to a a small congregation, um, smaller than ours most likely, right, Uh, of people who were at risk of drifting. They were were beginning to to drift away from from Jesus. And and nobody starts off, right, trying to shipwreck it all, right? nobody, Nobody has the goal of having fake faith. But for many, it simply begins with with spiritual laziness. And so for these folks listening, right, so long ago in that congregation, hearing these these words, I mean, the author's already told them that that Jesus is better. No matter what you put on the list, Jesus is always better. And he just began this really long section right in the midst of on how Jesus is the great high priest offering us perfect access to God. And we'll, we'll be in this section for quite some time. Those are the last part of or the first part of chapter 5, if you look in your Bibles, it's all about this idea of, of Jesus as the high priest. But it's almost like at this moment, for these words, it's kind of like he, he looks up from his notes. And that's kind of how I imagine it, right? He looks up from his notes, he looks around at the congregation, and he realizes that nobody cares. They're just not really paying attention. Maybe they are a little bit, but, but not like he thinks they should. I mean, you know that we preachers can see you, right? Okay? I mean, some of you, I, I swear, you, you, you actually believe that I can't. You can see me, I can see you. That's just the way it works, right? That's just normal science. And we can know, right? We, we get a body language. We, anyway, enough, enough. But this preacher, he looks up, and he stops all that he's been doing about the high priest, pauses on that, that main topic, and he warns them, about fake faith. Look what he says. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. He says, about this, the high priest thing, okay? About this, we've, we've got much to say. And it is hard to explain. Since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you. Again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. And that word for dull there will be used just a few verses later. It'll be translated as sluggish. He's saying your, your ears are lazy and so are your lives. I mean, kids, you know how sometimes, again, I don't mean any disrespect, kids, um, but sometimes you kind of have like selective hearing, right? Your parents have probably talked to you about that. Like you just, you sometimes just hear what you, you want to hear and the, the rest is kind of like Charlie Brown, right? Wah, 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 wah. You know, but it's not just kids that do that, right? Grown-ups do that. 
frankly, whole churches do that. And when it happens, as a result, when, when, our, when our hearing becomes selective, he says, he says you're kind of like a grown man or a grown woman still breastfeeding. Ooh. It's gross, isn't it? But that's, that's the idea. It's like you can't even eat, you can't even eat normal food. You, still have to, you have to still drink milk. That's the, that's the idea. Because of their lazy ears, dull of hearing, they've developed lazy lives. They're, they're stuck learning basic theology without actually living it out. And it's, it's okay to be a beginner. It's just not okay to stay a beginner. Now, it's not that we, we graduate from Jesus or the gospel and, and get to the really meaty portions of theology. The, the whole book of Hebrews is about the basics of the gospel and who Jesus is and what it means. It's, it's, not, it's not that. It's It's that we continue to explore the implications of all that Christ is for us, all that he's done for us, all that it means in our lives, that we never get tired of that, that we continue diving deeper into who he is and and what it means, that we grow. What's the big deal? I mean, it seems kind of harmless, doesn't it? So they're they're not growing like they should. I mean, big deal. But think about that. What if... What if your child wasn't growing like she should? Ah, no big deal. It'll be fine. Of course not. The reality is, in many ways, if we're not growing, we're dying. I mean, it's a, it's a sign of, of serious problems. If you're not growing in your faith, if you're the same Christian that you were a year ago, if your faith is lazy, it might also be fake. Before we move on here, we need to pay attention to these warning signs in our lives. Ask yourself, as, I, as I've been asking myself this week, is, is my faith lazy? Really, at the end of the, are my ears lazy? Do, do I listen or do I really listen? And for example, if, if you sit here Sunday after Sunday hearing God's word and can't point to concrete areas in your life that are changed by it, that ought to be alarming to you. And if you don't, if you don't read your Bible regularly, or pray often, or, or serve others, or spend time in community, or, or attend church regularly, if you don't do those things, and then, and then actually live out the things that you are learning in those places, if you don't, I mean, what he's saying is, you're a lazy Christian. How is Christ changing you? You're either growing or dying. Lazy faith leads to fake faith. And faith, fake faith leads to hopelessness. That's the next section here. You see, the New Testament has really big categories for people who struggle, right? For, for st- struggling with doubt and, and sin and, and all those things. People who battle against their, their own weaknesses and problems. Really big categories full of, of grace and mercy and forgiveness. But that's, that's not what we're talking about here, okay? What we're talking about and where the categories get really narrow is for those who claim to know Jesus but are completely unchanged by him. Those who claim to follow him and yet at some point walk away from him forever. 
When we talk about that, the categories scripturally are really narrow and really ugly. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. Probably the three verses I've been looking forward to least when we started Hebrews. He says to that congregation and to us, For it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Yikes. Now, there are some pretty significant theological issues in here that need to be discussed. Okay? And we'll talk a little bit about them. But some of us are more concerned about the theological nuances of these words. So concerned about what it, what it means that you don't actually recognize that he might be talking to you. Don't lose the warning here. In the, midst of, in the midst of your curiosity. Now, traditionally, there have been two ways, two broad ways of interpreting this, this these verses. Um, let me kind of explain a little bit. They're very different, and yet the end result of both of them is exactly the same. Uh, the first imp- imp- interpretation is that when the author s- writes this or says this, he's, he's talking about Christians, people who were truly Christians who lose their salvation by rejecting Christ. And as a result, they end up alienated from Jesus. And while I certainly understand why uh, some hold that position, I'm sure some of you probably have that background in you, um, I don't believe that it's possible for the truly converted to ever abandon their faith. I don't think a believer can lose their salvation. But, and this is what I think he's talking about, this is the second interpretation, there are those in the church who looked like Christians, acted like Christians, talked, to, talked like Christians, who thought they were Christians, but in the end proved that they never were. That their faith was fake. And they end up alienated from Christ. I mean, theologically, the interpretations, right, they're very different. But the warning is the same. The end is the same. Whether you lose your salvation or you end up proving that you never were saved, if you end alienated from Christ, that's bad news. Especially since some of us are faking it and we don't even know it. Some of us have been enlightened. You've, you've heard the gospel. Maybe even, you know, pray to prayer. You've, you've tasted the, the heavenly gift. Maybe, maybe communion there. I think that's probably what he's talking about. The, this, this gathering, this ritual. You've tasted this life. You've shared in the Holy Spirit. Living in the community that only he creates, the church. You've benefited from the spiritual gifts in the lives of others. You've tasted the goodness of his word. Just like in the story he told us a, a couple chapters earlier about the Israelites tasting the fruit of the promised land but refusing to enter They'd seen it, tasted it, and then chucked it all away. And in case I'm being unclear, here's what I think he's saying. There will be some who prayed a prayer, who attended church, 
who served, gave, led. There will be people that you would have sworn were better Christians than you who in the end walk away, never to return, proving that they never truly encountered this this Jesus and ending up in hell. Do you hear the alarm? Not all of us are going to make it. And and for those who abandon Christ, I mean, do you you see what he says? It's possible for someone to so abandon Christ, so reject him, to, to fall so headlong into our own sinfulness and selfishness that it can actually become impossible for us to repent. Do you hear the alarm? I mean, not not that Jesus would refuse someone repenting, right? Uh, Jesus promises to welcome all who who come to him in in repentance to forgive. He he does, but I think what he's saying, that there's a point where our hearts get so hard, we just lose the ability to repent. Do you hear the alarm? When it happens, as he continues in this, he says it's, it's like taking Jesus and nailing him to the cross all over again. That if you walk away from him, never to return, you might as well pick up a hammer and nails and hang him on the cross again once yourself. Do you hear the alarm? And yet some of us are still thinking about that person who really needed to hear this message. Because we all know the sad story. We know, we know the people in our lives who are, who are at risk. But have you stopped for just one moment to ask yourself, could it be me that he's talking about? Do we hear the alarm? Oh, man, I don't like this. Right? I mean, it makes me un- uncomfortable even to, to think about this. Aren't you, aren't you all just so glad you came to church today, Right? This is, this is hard stuff, and especially for me. You know, I, I grew up where it was sort of implicit. I don't know if it was actually ever spoken this way, but it was implicit that all you had to do to be a Christian was to pray a prayer. That's it. You, you didn't really have to mean the prayer, right? You, you didn't, certainly didn't have to change about it. Your life didn't have to change at all. Um, and you didn't even have to believe it ongoing. I mean, you could stop believing it at any time, but you were good no matter what. And some of us... Some of us want to still hold on to that, don't we? Because it, it seems so much easier, so much safer. We, we, we seem to, to like that. We gravitate that. But really, if we do that, all we're doing is trusting a prayer rather than trusting Jesus. I mean, it'd be sort of like getting out your birth certificate to prove you're alive. Okay. I mean, I guess, I guess you could do that. But if the only evidence of your life is your birth certificate, bad news, you're probably dead already. Life, life is obvious. I mean, when you're around life, you can't help but, but see it and, and notice it. So how do we prove that our faith is alive? Well, there is no proof, sorry. But there is confidence. There can be assurance. Our faith is assured by faithfulness. Now I know some of you are still mad at me. Honestly, I I know some of you 
won't come back next Sunday because of this week. That's what happens when we take this book seriously. It's just, it's sort of the inevitable result if we're really going to build our lives upon this, then we have to take it seriously. But if it's any consolation, I don't like it either. I mean, words like this scare me as much as I hope it scares you. Because fear is an appropriate response to a passage like this. It's what alarms do. I mean, they, they, they freak us out. And my impulse, right, is to, to rip these words from my Bible just as I ripped the smoke alarm from my ceiling, right? I don't like it. Alarms are meant to frighten us. But not to the point of despair, as if all is already lost. Alarms are meant to motivate us, to wake us from our, our self-delusion, to alert us to the deceitfulness of sin and how easily my heart loves to be lied to. They're meant to compel us to action as if our lives actually depended on it. Because they do. No alarm is without hope. I mean, if there was no hope, what would be the point of the alarm? Right? And I love how the author continues here. I, just, I, love, I, love, I love this because he doesn't stop there, right? I mean, he has just laid down the gauntlet. He is in love, I think. He's kicked them, right, while they're down. And they're feeling it. What does he say in verse 9? Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, you who I love, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. This is, this is the only time in Hebrews that the author refers to them as beloved. Only time. It, it is in love that he, he confronts them, for he feels sure, do you see that? He feels sure of better things. I mean, it's kind of like he's saying, this could be you, but we're confident that it's not you. Your, your faith could be fake, and believe me, you better take this alarm seriously. But we can feel sure of better things. How? How do we feel sure of better things? Well, the author encourages us in three different areas. Believe it or not, this is an encouraging passage, not a defeating one. First, he wants us to examine the evidence that you and I need to regularly search our hearts, our lives, search our life for any sort of evidence that our faith is actually real. Yeah, I'm good. I'll be fine. I don't, I don't need to worry about this. I mean, these, these words, they're clearly not written for me. You know, the person that I get frightened for most reading verses like this, it's not the one who panics, right? That's, that's some of you, right? You're kind of you're freaking out a little bit, wondering, well, have I done this? Is it, is it true? Is it? I mean, I think there's so much hope for you if that's, if that's where you're at. We'll talk about that in a sec. It's the person who hears words like these and they're not, not even a little bit nervous. They just sort of assume, ah, I'm covered, it's good, it's fine. So quickly, we get complacent and comfortable, which leads to arrogance and laziness. How do you know these words weren't written for you? Examine your life. Have you turned away from your sins? Ask for his forgiveness. Are you regularly 
turning away from sin? Are you seeking to to follow him in every aspect of your life? Are you growing in your faith? Do you see places in which you have made steps forward? I'm not asking if you're perfect or if it's always been in this, you know, ideal direction. But is there evidence? Do you trust him? Verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. There's their evidence. Points to their work and their love. I mean, those things don't save us, right? Hopefully we know that those things, no amount of good works, no amount of good love could possibly rescue us. And yet a faith that saves always changes the way we work and always changes the way that we love. Examine the evidence Second, I think what he, where he goes to next is fight the laziness. Fight it, because, man, I, I love the minimum. I mean, honestly, I, I love, you know, any chance I get to just kind of do the bare minimum to sort of scrape by, unless my life depends on it, right? That is pretty obvious that I don't, I don't want to just do the minimum in those situations. Look at what he says in verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish. The same word from earlier on, dull hearing. He's saying that assurance of salvation comes through a life of earnestness, diligence, of zeal, of effort. Salvation doesn't come through those things. Certainly not. Salvation only comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is nothing we could possibly, possibly do to earn it or add to it. And yet our assurance, he's saying, comes as we fight the laziness. As we live a life of earnestness, seeking to to, to live this. Go back to to chapter 5, verse 14. It's really similar to what he said there. Um, Back in the, the, the milk, solid food thing, he says, But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I love that phrase, trained by constant practice. If you want to grow, if you want to persevere to the end, if you want to show that your faith is real, it takes effort. Training by constant practice. How are you training yourself? I mean, one of the ways that Christians have done this for, for centuries is through regularly reading their Bibles and, and gathering together in, in worship and, and to, to pray often and to serve and love. I mean, all of these kind of classical spiritual disciplines, they seem so old-fashioned to us sometimes. Yet we find so much life and joy and growth in them. The reality is some of us are just lazy Christians. Do you see how dangerous that is? Fight it. And finally, if we long for our faith to be real, we've got to live it together. I mean, how many times have we said that throughout Hebrews, right? Well, he keeps coming back to the importance of doing this in, in community. He says, verse 12, he says, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We don't often think about the value of imitating another person's faith, do we? 
And I, I don't know if it's just sort of a, a cultural thing where we're so far removed, you know, they, they, a culture like theirs was so collective and we're so individualistic, right? It's all about me. We don't want to imitate anybody for anything. And yet here he says, be imitators of people who, who've lived this life. It reminds me of some words that a professor in seminary said um, to me, actually to the whole class. He said, we as Christians, we need three kinds of people, three kinds of Christians in our lives. We said it's kind of corny, but it's memorable. He said, we need pacers, racers, and tracers. I don't know, corny, right? A little, little too cute, but, but you'll remember it, okay? We, we need pacers, people who set the pace for us that we can follow and imitate, learn from, grow from, who have, you know, made some good decisions along the way that we can, that we can emulate. And we need, we need racers, peers, people to run alongside us, to grow from one another, to imitate each other. And we, we need tracers, people following us. The reality is they're already following us. I'm not just talking about us as parents, but all of us are being imitated by the people who come after us. Is your life worth imitating? Because they're watching. And they are imitating. That's why it's impossible to live the Christian life alone. You need the church. I need my community group. People who know me that I can know to live live this out together. You know, this is one of the reasons that we often talk about intergenerational church, right? It's kind of our fancy way of saying that we want people of all ages together as much as possible. We want kids and uh, adults worshiping together, serving together, playing together. We think that's really important because we are by nature imitators. We learn from the people around us. We, we grow or don't grow based on what we see so often. Do you know a recent study of students who grow up in churches and head off to college, a recent study said that 50% of them lose their faith when they get there or in those four years. Half. Now, that study goes on and shows that about half of them come back later on, you know, sometime, sometime later. Some of you are in that comebacker category, right? You're, you're here again. Nevertheless, I'm not, I'm not okay with those numbers. Are you? Well, it's, it's us that we're imitating it's us that they're, they're following, learning from, and, and, and kids, it's, it's why we, we want you in here as much as possible. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not naive. I know you're not, like, you know, getting tons of stuff out of the sermon or whatever. That's okay. And I, I've said this before. That's not the highest value of you being here this is, is the expectation that you're going to get something out of the service. The highest value is that you get to see your parents and Sunday school teachers and youth leaders and all the other adults who are around you, loving you, praying for you, caring for you. You see them also needing, learning, coming around this book, submitting our lives to it, worshiping together. I mean, that's, that's the real value. We're imitators. We need one another. I mean, at, at every stage of development. I mean, last Sunday, for example, my four-year-old, I don't know if anybody saw her, she's usually in first service, we're singing and she's just, you know, she's raising her hand, worshiping, you know, she has no idea what she's doing, right? Uh, but she's an imitator. It's, it's a beautiful thing that we get, to, we get to do that, to live this life together. And it doesn't matter how old you are, we need one another to live it out, to actually do this thing. deep breath. Well, I heard that story again. I mean, you, you know the story. Many of you do. You've probably heard it way too many times. It is, it is for me the most horrible of horror stories. A pastor I know, a good pastor, doing good things, 
abandoned his family, his wife, his church just recently. Um, he just ran off. And I don't, I don't say that to throw stones at all. I mean, in fact, just the opposite. I mean, that makes me sad. It makes me sad for, for him and for his family. It makes me sad for the believers who trusted him. But even more than that, it just it scares me. I'm just being honest. Because I, I know me. I know how lousy my desires can be, how weak my will is. Maybe these words are written about me. And sure, I, I do this stuff, right? I, I examine the evidence. I fight the laziness. Believe, it, I, believe me, I do. I, I live in community. I think community is so important for me personally. It's hugely valuable to my own growth and staying firm in my faith. But who's to say I won't just end up another statistic? No, ever, no pastor ever sets out to ruin his family and his life and his church and his soul. And yet it happens. So how do I sleep at night? Well, how do you sleep at night? I mean, really, these words, pastor or not, these words are written for all of us. So how do I sleep? First of all, by taking the warning seriously taking it seriously, but second and more importantly, ultimately, by not trusting in my own ability to keep strong, but trusting in his ability to keep me strong, and and resting in his faithfulness to keep me faithful. You see, it'd be so easy to walk away from a sermon like this solely focused on ourselves, right? Walk away with our our checklist, all the things that we're going to do to make our lives perfect and awesome and and never let this happen to us, and that's, that's not just dangerous. It's terrifying, because it just can't work that way. You can't trust yourself. It's the last thing you can do. We need to trust the Jesus that we keep learning about in these words. I mean, think about what we've already heard in Hebrews, right? And it's only like maybe 15 minutes into his sermon. Where we're like, what, this is week, week seven for us, so we're going a little slower than they were. But they, these words would have been fresh for them, okay? They would have just heard that Jesus is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, He's the one who who fixed the problem with death, not just death, but even the fear of death, who overcomes all of their sins, all of their weakness, who died to save us from ourselves and rose again, the great high priest who loves us and accepts us and longs to restore us. It is only Jesus, only because of Jesus, that we can feel sure of better things. So will we keep trusting?